Hello, I'm Lydia Shampole, and welcome to another episode of the Creepy Tech Podcast. Feel free to send me a message if you have something specific you want me to cover this season, or you can leave me a voicemail at 503-395-8030 if you have a creepy tech story you would like shared on the next episode. This week, we are going to do a deep dive into cyber warfare, the gang-stalking cult, and swatting. Most of you may have heard about cyber warfare or swatting. Maybe just a vague mention in an article or video somewhere on the World Wide Web. Over the last decade or so, this understanding and the definitions of what cyber warfare is has grown in its range to include so many types of crimes that it's astounding. Recently, two amazing individuals sent me a request on Instagram and Twitter to cover both swatting and gang stalking. A quick thank you to both of you. I truly appreciate your requests, and I hope that this episode gives you all the information or additional information into this interesting new twist. Now, after looking a bit more into both swatting and gang stalking, I decided to combine them all into one episode since they can both be placed under the cyber warfare group or category. Uh, And cyber warfare was something that I was planning on covering this season, so this definitely rounded off the topic a little bit more. So thanks again. Okay, let's jump right in. Cyber warfare is defined as the use of technology to attack nations, governments, or citizens, which causes harm that is comparable to that of a physical attack. This can be either emotional, mental, or physical harm. At present, there haven't been any large-scale cyber attacks that have resulted in either governmental or international-wide consequences, but there have been some instances where companies and individuals have been victims of such attacks. Most recently, I covered how hackers use public Wi-Fi to collect information and use it for malicious purposes, or how internet bots were used to influence the 2016 U.S. elections. You can listen to Season 1, Episode 5 for the Wi-Fi episode or Episode 7 if you would like to listen to more about both of those topics. While we could argue that both of these episodes covered actions that could be loosely grouped under the cyber warfare category, mainly on the basis that they both use technology to essentially target and in a sense attack the individuals, I mean, that definitely fits under that category, Why don't we take a look at a more clear-cut case where there is no space for miscategorizing these particular incidents? Now, we all know that the inner workings of governments can be complex and terribly dark, so it's only right that I start off this deep dive with a look into how governments can and do use cyber warfare to either mitigate, intimidate, or to actively attack each other. There's one particular incident that has held my interest for a really long time. It was even covered in a documentary called Zero Days that I believe I watched on Netflix a while back, but I think it's pretty much available on any streaming platform. So in this documentary, it broke down the why, the what, the how, and all of the things that happened after this whole operation was discovered. And I really recommend checking it out if you would like to know more about cyber warfare attacks. Let's start off with this Wired article that I found from early 2014, uh, which covers the incident and describes it as follows. Quote, in January of 2010, 
inspectors with the International Atomic Energy Agency. Visiting the Natanz Uranium Enrichment Plan in Iran noticed that centrifuges used to enrich uranium gas were failing at an unprecedented rate. The cause was a complete mystery, apparently as much to the Iranian technicians replacing the centrifuges as to the inspectors observing them. Now five months later, a seemingly unrelated event occurred, end quote. The article continues that, quote, Stuxnet, as it came to be known, was unlike any other virus or worm that came before. Rather than simply hijacking targeted computers or stealing information from them, it escaped the digital realm to wreak physical destruction on equipment the computers controlled, end quote. The virus was designed to take control of the centrifuges with the goal of increasing the pressure to cause a malfunction. What's even scarier is that it took almost a year for the virus to be discovered, and by that time, this was just the first implementation of the virus. The hackers were already planning on releasing an updated version that would attack the speed of the centrifuges. Since the system was air-gapped, meaning that their system had no direct connection to the internet or to any other computer that is connected to the internet, for security reasons, of course, these hackers had to find a way to install the virus without the internet. And experts believe that they did this by dropping an infected USB drive in the parking lot of the site. They then believed that an individual picked it up and plugged it in to check who it could possibly belong to which I am pretty sure that I've done in the past, um, especially before watching this particular documentary. Anyways, this was exactly what the hackers were waiting for. Once uploaded, the worm made its way through the nuclear system, wreaking havoc. And as the news has shown in the past, a malfunction in a nuclear plant is definitely a very serious matter. All of this could have been avoided by providing employees with training on how to prevent the spread of viruses, but I know that this is something that is just now becoming required after all of the recent attacks and recent hacks targeted at larger corporations and companies. I believe that while some things can be avoided or prevented from happening, by actively providing yearly training that teaches fundamentals like how to identify phishing scams, or how to verify the credibility of an email or a thumb drive, and ways to set up proper firewalls is a crucial step in making sure that you or your company are protected or at least a bit more prepared when it comes to cyber attacks of this type. So the documentary Zero Days continues on to explain how experts found the virus as well as how they neutralized the entire attack and the methods that they now use to protect systems from cyber attacks like this particular one. And as I said before, I highly recommend watching it if this sounds like something that you want to know more about. Let me know if you do watch it. Let me know what you think about it. Um, I'd love to discuss with a couple of you. Uh, yeah, that would be pretty cool. Jumping back into this, we know that governments have been aware of, if not actively developing and using cyber warfare against each other for quite some time. But more recently, this has crossed over into our day-to-day -day lives. As individuals, it's pretty hard to believe that someone or some organization would specifically target us. But that's no longer a belief that we should be holding with absolute certainty. A very interesting case happened quite recently that could be setting a disturbing trend in more personal types of cyber attacks. 
In this particular case, a journalist allegedly sent a seizure-triggering image to an individual he knew had epilepsy. And yes, that sounds ridiculous and really terrible, but this guy thought that it was a great idea to do this. In the Washington Post article that I found, which was written in early 2017, it describes that the incident went something like this. Quote, The journalist, Newsweek's Kurt Eichenwald, suffered a seizure in Dallas after viewing the flashing animation which he received via Twitter late last year. According to a statement from the Justice Department, Eichenwald had written about his epilepsy and publicly described a similar attack several weeks before the December 15th incident. An authority said that the alleged attacker sent him the image in an attempt to hurt him as revenge for what he saw as the reporter's critical coverage of President Trump. End quote. So this case was significant and pretty interesting to me for a couple of reasons, but the main one being that this is the first time that a crime like this has actually resulted in charges brought against the alleged attacker. In the article, they stated that, quote, legal experts compared the alleged crime to sending a letter bomb in the mail or to purposely giving a person a dangerous allergic reaction, end quote which in itself is an accurate description of the crime and it fits firmly under the possible implementations of cyber warfare. This specific crime results in incredibly targeted and destructive consequences, not only to the individuals targeted, but also to their family members, their friends, their careers, etc. One of the main goals of these types of crimes is to disrupt or harm specific individuals. Imagine being an individual with epilepsy and now not only worrying about managing your condition, but also having to worry that by voicing your opinions online, as we all do, or that by posting something someone disagrees with online, the offended party could send you intentionally triggering images to cause you to have an epileptic episode, an episode that could result in your death. In my mind, this is insanely terrifying. And as I kept researching these types of incidents, I found that this specific one isn't the only case that has been reported on. It's simply the first of its kind that has resulted in legal charges because the attacker was known. CBS News covered a case like this one, but with one huge difference. In 2008, hackers gained access to the Epilepsy Foundation's website and uploaded seizure-inducing images. The article explains that, quote, the attack happened when hackers exploited a security hole in the foundation's publishing software that allowed them to quickly make numerous posts and overwhelm the site's support forums. Within the hackers' posts were small flashing pictures and links, masquerading as helpful, to pages that exploded with kaleidoscopic images pulsating with different colors. They were out to create seizures, said Ken Lowenberg, the senior director of web and print publishing for the foundation. End quote. These images caused visitors to experience migraines and near-seizure reactions. The Epilepsy Foundation took down the images pretty quickly and have now implemented restrictions on what users can post and access. But still, individuals now were forced to consider the consequences of accessing a site that was created as a resource for them to manage their condition. And although advancements in technology bring positive changes to the world we live in, they also come with their own baggage and are changing the rules on every single aspect of possibilities we once thought wouldn't or couldn't change. For instance, playing video games. Seems harmless enough. 
I know most of us have plopped down in front of the TV or computer and booted up a video game with the belief that no matter how violent the game, what happens in the game could never actually result in physical harm to ourselves or others. Well, that all changed quite recently when a new type of crime started making waves on the news and in the media. I'm talking about swatting, which is defined as, quote, the action or practice of making a prank call to emergency services in an attempt to bring about the dispatch of a large number of armed police officers to a particular address, end quote. These fake calls are usually pretty serious in nature, and they often include reports of bomb threats, murders, or hostage situations at specific addresses. The true motivation behind these calls is something that is so absurd that I basically did a double take when I stumbled on this particular story. So CNN has been covering this case um, and explains that, quote, on the evening of December 28, 2017, a 911 caller told a dispatcher in one of the counties in Kansas. This call was to report a shooting and a possible hostage situation at the Finch address, police said, end quote. Wichita police were sent to the home and they surrounded it. Finch came out of the house when police arrived and was shot, according to the U.S. attorney, when he dropped his hands as officers were telling him to raise his arms, end quote. Finch died at the hospital shortly after the shooting, and once they began investigating the incident, what they found had many wondering how this became a part of our society and how to stop it from ever happening again. According to CNN and a police affidavit, quote, Viner admitted that he had argued with a third co-defendant, Finch, a 28-year-old gamer in Wichita. They had argued over a multiplayer session of Call of Duty World War II. Authorities said that Viner was upset because the Wichita gamer, a teammate of his during the session, killed his in-game character. During their argument, Viner threatened to swat the teammate, and the teammate responded by providing an address and saying, quote, please try some shit, end quote. After this, police responded to the call, and the rest is a very dark part of history in the making. The CNN article continues to follow the case, breaking down the motivation for the call and the resulting case which led to Viner, a 19-year-old, being sentenced to 15 months in prison and the ongoing legal battle between the Finch family seeking damages in the sum of $25 million, the police officer suing the city of Wichita for lost wages and the state, of course. This particular case is one that has caused me to begin thinking about the present legal system's need to create new laws specifically for dealing with cyber attacks, especially before cases like these occur. Not only this, I'm starting to think that our educational system needs to start considering the ways in which technology can be used and then put in place classes that teach kids the dangers and the consequences of actions like this. Because, to be honest, if the parents, the teachers, the government, and any other official organization isn't teaching children about their responsibilities in this changing world, it's only logical to assume that they will learn from the world. And those lessons, as my mother likes to say, quote, contain much less love and a lot more hate and hardship, end quote. In my opinion, it's logical to argue that if we don't begin creating and setting a standard for how we treat each other and behave as human beings in this very brand new world, pretty soon, if not already, we're about to start forgetting what humanity feels or looks like, and we're about to see a lot more cases exactly like this. At this point, 
unless you are in the tech field or are at the forefront in developing new technology, it's hard to truly understand just how much tech will be changing basic human behavior and the resulting consequences of things we used to consider just harmless pranks. I remember back in the day, telephone pranks were the big thing, and you could use codes to hide your caller ID and to call back the number that just called you or things like that. But when most kids did this, and they said things like, quote, hi, sir, we're calling to inform you that you just won a million dollars or something along those lines. Something that was so insanely trivial that we knew that it wouldn't have any consequences in the world. Little did we know that pretty soon, these same types of pranks could be used to seek revenge or to actually harm another individual. As I said before, um, advancements in tech come with a lot of baggage, negative ones as well as positive ones. So as individuals, especially parents, educators, governments, um, official organizations, we need to start thinking about this and begin teaching children that just because you can do something that you consider harmless online, it doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be real life physical consequences that could change your life and that could result in the death of another person or an ongoing mental health issue. And that segues right into my next topic. Uh, There's a lot of other types of consequences other than death. Due to the changes in technology and the ability to form communities across the world, a new type of community has been formed which some are arguing has changed the way that those with existing mental health issues identify and manage their conditions and symptoms. The emotional and mental health consequences of cyber attacks including swatting, hacking, bullying, can be extremely dangerous when it comes to mental health. As I said earlier, this new type of community has been popping up everywhere, but I hadn't heard of it yet until an Instagram friend sent me a few articles that had piqued their interest and they thought to share with me. So thanks again for that one. Um, Yeah, cults have been a pretty large part of almost all civilizations known to man. These communities have always followed the same type of structure. A youngish, charismatic leader with a new way of seeing the world and our purpose in it finds a way to get their word to hundreds or thousands of individuals, which generates a following of devout followers willing to do anything and everything to remain in not only the leader's good graces, but also their community's good graces. So what happens when you introduce the ability to meet and speak to billions of people worldwide at a moment's notice? Well, cyber cults, of course, (laughs) with one very significant and interesting twist. This instantaneous medium of connection, meaning the internet, um, becomes the new young and charismatic leader. This creates a world where anyone and everyone has a say or possibly even very real and physical control over an individual's life, their mental health, and their perception of the world. And this community has been given the name uh, gang stalking. Uh, And this community consists of individuals who refer to each other and themselves um, as TIs or targeted individuals. These individuals all believe that they're being targeted by stalkers, hackers, operatives, and individuals online and in the real world. An article in Vice described the following, quote, In gang stalking, everything seems connected, and 
inconsequential details acquire a new purpose. That person who crossed your path earlier, uh, or that siren outside your window, that chair in the kitchen, is it where it was before? Has someone been in your house moving things around? Are there microchips under your skin? End quote. Targeted individuals believe that the goal of these stalkers is to ruin their lives. Seemingly unrelated events begin to take on more and more significance as the evidence piles up. While researching, I found that there is a few common reasons that have been reported by TIs um, as to why they're being targeted. And the list includes things like they feel that they made a mistake or did something in the past that was considered wrong or that they feel very bad about. Number two, uh, they got too close to a conspiracy theory and are now being watched. Or number three, because of their sexuality. These are the three that I found in almost every article that I read. One article in particular by a journalist at the New York Times spoke with individuals from the group and found that the group, quote, cuts across all classes and professions and includes lawyers, soldiers, artists, and engineers. In Facebook forums and in call-in support groups, they commiserate over the skepticism of their loved ones and share stories of black vans that circle the block or co-workers conscripted into this campaign, end quote. Some of these support groups and forums online are the main resources for individuals who are just beginning to believe that they are being targeted for some of the reasons above. And veterans of the movement end up providing advice like, quote, do not engage with the voices in your head. If your relatives tell you that you're imagining things, they could be in on it. And last of all, do not go to a psychiatrist, end quote. In the same article, the author spoke with a doctor who is currently studying the movement. Dr. Lorraine Sheridan, who is the co-author of perhaps the only study of gang stalking, explains that, quote, the community poses a danger that sets it apart from those other groups promoting troubling ideas, such as anorexia or suicide. On those topics, the internet abounds with medical information and treatment options, while an internet search for gang stalking turns up page after page of results that regard it as fact. What's scary for Dr. Sheridan is that there are no countersites that try and convince targeted individuals that they are delusional. End quote. Dr. Sheridan also said that these individuals end up in a closed ideology echo chamber, end quote. This in, okay, by this statement, she is indicating that because the internet, social media platforms, and search engines typically collect information on what you search, what you're interested in, and things you've liked or commented on, then they use this information to show more things like that, it's becoming easier to end up only seeing things that reinforce your views or opinions. These platforms are essentially creating bubbles of information that contribute significantly to what we believe is true. The article also explains that in her study, co-written with Dr. David James, a forensic psychiatrist, they, quote, examined 128 cases of reported gang stalking. And all of those cases, the subjects were most likely concluded to be delusional, end quote. These individuals typically ended up unemployed, they lost friendships, family ties, and ended up being outcasted by the very society that should be helping them. 
which leads them to a reliance and a stronger foothold in the communities that they find online that do believe them. Now, this could be terrifyingly damaging to those who are currently dealing with mental health issues, but in cases of individuals who are not dealing with a mental health diagnosis and they're actually the victim of physical real-life stalking, the consequences are significantly more sinister. I began thinking of the role that gaslighting plays in stalking cases, and this brought me to the conclusion that this new form of cyber attacks for the individuals who do not have mental health issues or a diagnosis and are actively being stalked, this will make it difficult to, number one, get help, number two, protect themselves, and three, to be able to implement legally enforceable protective restraining orders against the attacker simply because people have more reasons and more cases of gang stalking incidents that have jaded their perception of stalking reports which causes them to doubt the experiences they are hearing from their friends or their loved ones about them being actually stalked in real life. Now the existence of gang stalking and the experiences of those who believe themselves to be of those who believe themselves to be victims of gang stalking. I'm not saying that those shouldn't be disbelieved or that this community should be shut down. What I am saying is that gang stalking, these experiences of gang stalking or these individuals may leak over into actual cases of real world stalking. And we already have a pretty strong affinity to disbelieving experiences that sound unimaginable or like it should have been in a movie. Gang stalking could encourage this, and society could fall deeper into an autopilot mode that groups everyone into this delusional subset. This research raised some pretty complex questions for me specifically, especially in terms of the ideas I have for how to move forward in the legal, educational, and parental systems that we currently have in place. Yet, with gang stalking, uh, I'm not even sure how someone would begin to implement changes in the system that would help us navigate this brand new world. However, I do think that uh, the best place to start would be to begin talking more to each other and building our own personal relationships, simply because I believe that by having consistent day-to-day -day interactions with individuals in our current presence, yes, that means IRL, uh, I think it makes it easier to tell what's real um, and what may just be a delusion. But then again, I could be wrong. Um, I'd like to hear what you think about this whole, all three of these topics and um, if you've had any experiences with them. So uh, that's all I have for you this week. And I would just like to thank you guys so much for listening every single week. We just recently reached 28,000 listeners and thank you so much to each and every single one of you. Um, I'm so happy to find that there is a community out there of people who are interested in this kind of stuff and would like to start a discussion on how we can change the world. So thank you. Anyway, as I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, if you have a story that has to do with any creepy tech um, or you just want to say hello or anything along those lines or you want me to cover something on one of the episodes this season, you can feel free to call 503-395-8030 and leave me a voicemail or send me a DM, whichever way is 
most easiest for you. So you can find me on Instagram at tech underscore creepy, on Twitter at tech creepy, or on my website, elshampole.com. Yeah, that's it. References are on the website. Check those out if you'd like to see where I got this particular information. Have a great week. Thanks again. Bye. Podcast. 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 Podcast.